Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Shu Wang. Welcome back to New Books Network. Today, I feel very happy to introduce Dr. Amin Frank to join us to introduce his fantastic new book, Feeling Lucky. So now I want to invite Dr. Frank to join us and introduce himself to us. Um, yeah, and thank you for having me. So my name is uh, Paul Franke. I'm a German historian uh, currently working at the Philips University at Marburg, but I'm also an associated researcher at the German-French uh, Research Center Marburg in Berlin. And I am generally interested in the cultural history of the economy um, and urban history, the history of consumption, as well as illegal economies and their history. And of course, I mean, you know, the history of gambling and gamblers and Feeling Lucky is my first book, and it is about the history of Monte Carlo and Las Vegas, the cities of casinos, um, as well as the local casinos themselves, um, the consumption history of casino gambling and the experiences of players actually going there, stretching from 1863 um, until 1976. Okay, thanks so much for your answer. So, because I, I noticed you mentioned that you are a historian, you identify yourself as a historian of commercial and the economy. But when I read your book, I think it's very interesting because you, I mean, the main topic of your book, as you say, is about history of gambling and casinos. So, but as a historian, I will say, before read, before reading your fantastic book, I, I, I didn't know any book, a history book about gambling. So here's mm. my question. Why are you taking interest in the history of gambling in the casinos? Yeah, no, um, that's a very good question because it seems it seems kind of counterintuitive because gambling is such a fundamental part of so many cultures, globally speaking, um, that it seems almost strange that not a lot of historians have tackled the whole topic of gambling and organized gambling. Um, so kind of the issue is exactly that gambling seems to be such a basic part of the human condition and experience that it almost seems that it doesn't have a history because it was always there, because it was always, um, part of, uh, being part of human society. Um, and therefore it doesn't change and without change, there's no historical development to actually look at. Um, and I'm not the only historian who kind of questions this line of thought, but um, I'm really one of those putting it um, center stage and try to really tackle um, gambling, not as an co- sort of constant of human existence, but rather to actually give it a history. Um, and then my interest uh, specifically in Monte Carlo and Las Vegas comes from bringing together cultural and economic history. So what I mean is that when I started this whole project, casinos were largely analyzed as sort of 
um, build metaphors um, or as societal issues made manifest. Um, similar to that, gambling was studied um, only from very certain vantage points. So it would be a window to the human existence or to a specific culture. And um, so there was aristocratic gambling and working class gambling or gambling as a way in into uh, cultural issues of certain societies. Um, but I wanted uh, to bring back economic questions. Um, so how was gambling contributing to a larger history of, for example, the reorientation of the capitalist economy since the 19th century? Um, and I was interested in how gambling was actually done in casinos, how people played, how they made sense of their activities and how this could fit into a broader history um, of consumption, of design consumption spaces um, and of economic questions. Um, so I was also interested in how casinos were historically actually run, organized, built, designed, and how gambling as a historic practice brought together social, cultural, and economic factors. Um, and to see gambling not only as rituals or as a set of abstract rules, but as an actual consumption practice gauge. Um, yeah, so this is, that was really a prime motivator uh, for writing Feeling Lucky. This has so much for your answer. Now let's turn to your book. So the first question about book, I'm, I would like to invite you to, I'm sorry, advise you to describe the role of city space in the production of the consumption experience in Monte Carlo and the street in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about uh, consumption experiences that are produced via city space, for example, I mean that in the historical sources ranging back until the 19th century, um, when people stepped into the urban districts or casinos in Monte Carlo or in Las Vegas, um, they did not only gamble, but they sought out a very specific way of playing games of chance. Um, so the casinos there did not offer the mere possibility to play, but a very distinctive experience of playing um, games. And many sources speak of this unique feeling um, that people felt when they stepped already into the urban spaces surrounding the casinos in, within the casino district. So be it Monte Carlo or the Strip. Um, so there is, for example, this travelogue from a later 19th century writer who stepped into Monte Carlo and he said, you know, every tended flower bed, every tickling fountain tells me I am in Monte Carlo. Um, or Hal K. Rothman, who was, was a historian um, of gambling and the American West, he's, um, in one of his books he wrote, nobody ever went to Las Vegas and after seeing the strip decided they really had to see Foxwoods. Um, and I wanted to understand how urban space um, kind of created this feeling of uniqueness um, to kind of understand how casino leaderships in both places um, set up a production nexus um, to create these impressions. Um, and city spaces were kind of crucial in that. Um, city spaces were important to further this process because not only was it the first space that people encountered after traveling to Monte Carlo or Las Vegas. Um, but when you go to the archives and you read the sources, you see how much energy and resources casinos kind of 
put into building up urban landscapes that would further their economic agenda, to kind of see it as an extension of their gambling and casino space. So there was a fluid boundary between casino and casino district. Um, so in both instances and in both centuries, both the 19th and the 20th, um, Monte Carlo and the Strip were both developed and built up as an extension of the casino. Um, it is sort of an approach of um, capitalist urban development where um, economic actors acted also as city planners um, and designed spaces that would not only encourage consumption, um, but specifically gambling activity that would exclude non-consumers like locals, working classes, uh, marginalized groups um, that would um, kind of be built upon a very strong but also strained pri uh, private public partnership between political actors and economic actors um, and where gambling entrepreneurs would increasingly begin to shape whole urban entities to promote their business interests. Um, so the casinos hoped to create urban spaces um, that they could link with values, tastes, and patterns of consumption um, that they are kind of leading to their, to their desired markets, which were often the middle classes. Um, to maybe give an example, so in Monte Carlo, this whole process really started in 1863 when Francois Blanc, who was the, the French gambling entrepreneur, who was kind of in charge of building up Monte Carlo, um, he was commissioned by the Prince Lee um, with a monopoly on gambling in Monaco, had this idea of building um, a whole town around his casino. Um, when you visualize Monaco, you have Monaco proper on the cliffs um, overlooking the bay. And um, on the other side of the harbor, on a small hill, there stood the casino separated from uh, Monaco, uh, from the old town of Monaco. And basically, um, Francois Blanc and his successors built up this hill as a completely new urban space with a completely new urban fabric, uh, quite figuratively and literally around their gambling house. Um, so they built up their own train station that was specifically catering towards tourists and bringing them to the gambling town. They built up um, a public transport system that would always lead to the casino. Um, they built grand hotels for gamblers to stay in. Um, they paid for the police that would um, specifically target non-consumers and kind of exclude them from this space of Monte Carlo. Um, and they were in charge of real estate development. So they favored touristic housing over housing that could also um, be homes for locals. So, so you had a whole urban district that was um, built around um, the casino um, and built up as sort of this miniature metropolis with all the amenities and um, pleasures that the middle classes associated with leisure and leisure activities. Um, but on the same side, you had a very targeted exclusion of the working class, of heavy industries, of pollution, anything that could kind of impede um, the leisure and pleasure-seeking gamblers coming to Monte Carlo. Um, and everything in this district was linked to gambling. So not only physically, because all the boulevards and street, the streets led towards the casino, 
Um, but also because gambling was so normalized that it seemed as a natural extension of coming to Monte Carlo on leisure and pleasure trips. Um, so you also, you see how urban space and business interests really coalesced um, around these factors and questions. And in Las Vegas, um, things were different in the sense as there was no master plan by one uh, entrepreneur. The strip was not organized uh, by a single company or a single person, but by many competing groups. Um, yet nonetheless, there was a consensus um, and a shared aim that was to build up the strip in the 1940s and early 1950s um, to be a fine-tuned urban environment that should resonate with the primary market gambling casinos. So the white car-owning middle-class visitors, especially from Southern California. Um, the strip was built to kind of channel movement towards gambling houses um, who um, encompassed all the leisure opportunities themselves rather than in Monte Carlo where the pleasure and leisure in the urban space, uh, Las Vegas casinos kind of united um, this within them. Um, and urban planning by casino executives there tried to basically limit um, the construction of side streets, for example, or sidewalks to keep the strip as one central road lined up with gambling houses so that people um, would eventually end up there. Um, the strip thereby slowly became its own uh, casino-dominated urban entity, quite different from the actual city of Las Vegas to the north. Um, it nonetheless also remained a highway limiting the movement of visitors into one direction, um, which was intended. Um, it's also interesting that this kind of made the strip into a suburban structure, um, which resonated with larger U.S. developments of shifting social and political focus from the inner cities towards the suburban in general. So you have suburban casinos that are built in a suburban space to appeal to the suburban middle class as a new and important group of potential gamblers and consumers. Okay, thanks so much for your answer. For the last question, I would like to invite you to describe architecture and the design of Monte Carlo's casino spaces in terms of their spatial script and the atmosphere there. I used the term spatial script that was originally introduced by Norman Klein to express that the casino leadership of Monte Carlo had a very defined idea how they would like consumers and gamblers to approach their gambling activities, how people should feel inside their spaces, how they should make a sense of their gambling activities. But all these ideas could not strictly be enforced. They could only be encouraged. Therefore, I used this term script because it was an outlined experience that people could also deviate from, but that was nonetheless very real. Um, so the casino um, or the casino leadership rather could only suggest how to engage with gambling. And they did so by designing spaces and building a casino um, in a way that would kind of channel people towards certain usages, kind of encourage them to play and engage in playing activity in a specific way. Um, so the whole script had to bridge consumer autonomy and the ambition to produce and disseminate an experience beforehand, um, really. Um, when you kind of 
Imagine walking through the Monte Carlo Casino. Uh, patrons could choose a room that reflected their gambling tastes, for example. Uh, when you enter the main gambling room, um, which catered more towards small-time gamblers that spent hours wagering small sums um, as part of a large group, um, usually made up of rather middle-class bourgeois tourists um, who played roulette, which was kind of the game of the masses at the time um, and the most popular game in Monte Carlo. Um, this main gambling room um, provided a spacious setting in which hedonistic and orientalist fantasies um, really took center stage. Um, they gave visitors the feeling that they were that they were not only merely playing games, um, but were engaging in a very unique experience in a uniquely built-up setting for that. Um, this was achieved partly by the decor, which adapted to popular tastes and um, kind of showed. Uh, mock so-called Moorish designs and favored heavy gold ornaments, but also used big mirrors to brighten and broaden the space visually, um, while the roulette tables uh, were built in the center of the room to kind of build um, and catch everyone's attention. Um, other gambling rooms um, featured other games, such as Tron de Caron for the higher social classes in the Salle which um, next room that um, so the whole Monte Carlo casino was quite an eclectic structure with each gambling room and each space uh, featuring its own designs and scripts um, for people to engage with. Uh, the atrium, this, the very first space people entered um, after stepping into the casino space, um, kind of served as, for example, a transitional space. It was deliberately blurring the distinction between visitor, spectator and gambler. Um, in order to bring the patrons to the tables and thereby transform them all into players. It also set the scene again with Orientalist designs that tapped into fantasies of empire that the predominantly European white male patron kind of harbored, um, and therefore also encouraged hedonism as it was closely aligned um, with Orientalist thought. Uh, the theater, which was also part of the casino, pulled double duty as the national opera, um, House of Monaco. Uh, it was used for round performances for the prince and his guests, but also had the more specific purpose um, to put people into a gambling mood. So when you look at, for example, um, the programs that uh, are still archived, uh, comedies and lighthearted performances uh, took center stage. The architecture, the costume designs, everything was set up to be not intellectual challenging, but rather lighthearted, um, kind of put people um, into the mood to um, engage in leisure activities. And the next leisure activity available was, of course, gambling. So you have this going together of architecture, um, kind of design choices, um, but also very practical activities in one um, architectural spatial setting. Thanks, thanks so much for answer for the last question. Um, sir, I would like to invite you to discuss both exterior and in interior design to show how the Spurb Casino employee spatial and emotional scribes to influence gambling behavior and their perceptions. Um, so Las Vegas went through many architectural changes, but to generally uh, speaking, as in Monte Carlo, Las Vegas strip casinos had to bridge um, familiar settings and practices 
um, with gambling, thereby normalizing uh, playing games of chance, uh, as this was still morally um, seen as a vice. Um, and they also used scripts um, or spatial scripts to achieve that. So most visitors that stepped into a strip casino between 1945 1976 uh, stepped into a space into a space that looked and felt unpredictable. So you have loud, um, you have a loud soundscape. You have a lot of um, kind of chaotic activity. Gambling is happening all over the place. Um, eccentric colors and design choices. Um, so all of this felt chaotic and to a certain degree unfamiliar, but at the same time, as a leisure space, casinos quite deliberately were built to appeal um, to pre-existing notions of leisure and vacation making. So casinos, especially in the um, 40s and 50s, were basically motor hotels on the highway, and very well-established suburban vacation destinations um, featuring gambling spaces and big city nightclubs all in one. And the lines between all these functions were deliberately and architecturally blurred as the casinos erased the distinctions between them deliberately. Um, on the strip, casino executives who had experience with running hotels, nightclubs, um, and clandestine leisure institutions merged the appeal of casinos uh, with elaborate entertainment. So for example, Sinatra, the Red Pack, and Elders are well-known examples. Um, and thereby slowly changed people's perception of gambling from a vice to something um, that was acceptable for middle-class patrons to do in this specific setting. Uh, which was kind of this hotel, nightclub, casino hybrid that existed in this suburban space. Um, at their core, strip casinos uh, thereby uh, thought to produce and sell a gambling experience that bridged contradictions, wagering hard-earned money in games with uncertain outcomes in a space that was um, rumored to have unsavory connections uh, with the underworld uh, and yet present everything as exciting and safe. So although everything seemed excessive, like playing slots and dice in the pool, um, seeing a live circus show while putting everything on credit and listening to a combo in the lounge, um, people could still navigate the space as it kind of was familiar to them in other settings. So it was still a motor hotel. It was still um, a high-class um, nightclub, was still featuring restaurants and cafes and Gambling was just part of this whole nexus, so to speak. Um, and that was possible because strip casinos architecturally were hermetic leisure spaces in a suburban setting. So they were self-sufficient consumption spaces designed to isolate visitors from the outside world and establish an atmosphere favorable to gambling activities because they just seemed part of this vacation you could have there. And casino executives and Interestingly enough, most visitors stressed the fun in gambling there, claiming it was quite a normal thing to do. It was an entertainment activity rather than uh, a social deviant activity. And there was this big issue and concern because gambling was still largely associated with uh, the frontier and with lawless spaces or with the inner cities, with marginalized people, um, with unsavory or immoral and um, illegal activities. Yet in Las Vegas, because it was kind of grounded in a very um, 
leisure and pleasure associated environment, um, the activity and the perception of it changed um, in this, but only locally and temporarily, which is the important thing to remember um, because this was quite unique to Las Vegas. Um, and as I said, casinos kind of still change, so can kind of identify three phases, one between 1945 and the uh, 1950s, in which gambling houses kind of transformed from traditional Western-themed uh, hotels into more luxurious casinos that imitated places like Palm Springs, um, that really went heavy on the nightclub entertainment and kind of reconceptualized gambling in this setting. Then the second phase from 1950s to the mid-1960s, um, this is really the phase where the famous casinos kind of grew, the Desert in the Sands. Um, these casinos elaborated on their appeal to the middle class, um, especially in the, in, in the entertainment department, um, but also exhibited a whole new sophistication in the architecture, diffusing gambling really throughout their whole structure, connecting it to all activities within them. And then the last phase that my book kind of looks at from 1966 to 76, uh, where the strip shifted into theme casinos that started to uh, imitate spaces um, such as Circus Circus or New York, New York, um, the Tropicana, um, and where you really see this merging of casino uh, with theme parks, which is the last phase that the chapter kind of um, investigates. Thank you so much for answer. Again, for the last question, I want to invite you to discuss the historical developments and the change in the professional biography of entrepreneurs and their workforces. Mm -hmm. So maybe to start with the workforce, the role was quite a crucial one because they were the ones that actually interacted with gamblers in the space. And so that did not only include the copiers, so the people who spun the roulette wheel um, and the dealers who handled the gambling equipment, um, but also a whole wide range of service personnel. Um, because in both Monte Carlo and Las Vegas, casino leaderships thought to produce a gambling experience that focused also on legitimacy and fun and excitement. Um, they could not um, employ people that would trigger any sort of social anxiety by their patrons. Um, what that meant was that um, casinos very heavily tried to not um, employ groups that could trigger moral anxiety by their prospective uh, patrons. So the workforce was really organized along the lines of well-established lines of power in terms of gender and race, for example. Um, the idea was that, for example, people of color or women um, could be regarded as controversial, suspicious by the overall white heteronormative clientele that both casino industries kind of imagined as their primary market. Um, and because they had to kind of offer a morally clean gambling, um, casinos went very hard in discriminating certain social and um, racial and uh, groups or genders um, because they really wanted to have a workforce that would be seen as unsuspicious by the overly you know white middle-class patrons um so in the monte carlo casino um female copies were not hired until well into the 20th century for example 
Um, strip casinos were also openly discriminatory. So in 1958, casinos and the city commissioner um, kind of um, pressured certain regulations um, that in that really banned women, for example, from dealing cards in Las Vegas. So they were only male dealers. Um, this ban on or de facto ban of female dealers remained in effect until 1970. Um, not until the consent degree of 1981 uh, uh, were women offered more equal job opportunities outside of the service department, really also became engaged in the gambling activities. Um, African-Americans were heavily discriminated against, even after the civil rights movements, um, casinos used their power over the labor market to hire uh, mostly white Americans in the lucrative positions, uh, generally only offering African-American positions in housekeeping, for example, although that shifted slowly. Um, that was an important factor because um, this open discriminatory um, attitude was seen as necessary to preserve this legitimate consumption experience of gambling because was seen that the conservative white patrons would not accept women dealing cards, would not accept sharing um, spaces with African-Americans, for example. Um, in terms of training, uh, the consumption experience um, also was closely aligned um, with certain ways um, gambling would be presented by the workforce. So in Monte Carlo, um, Gambling was well regulated. It was a spectacle to be witnessed and kind of very theatrical uh, presented, um, where individual gamblers would join a crowd and demonstrate emotional control um, by playing in a large group at one table. So the roulette tables were huge um, when compared to the ones in the US, for example. So that also meant that the workforce had to be able to deal with that kind of gambling. Um, the croupiers in Monte Carlo and to a certain degree also in Las Vegas were presented and often regarded as faceless, emotionless uh, embodiment of chance. Um, so they were seen um, in Monte Carlo, people often called them the automatons because they did not show any emotion. Fraternization was prohibited. Um, they could not um, accept gratitudes, although they changed in the 1920s when they pressured management to be allowed to take um, gratitudes and extra money. Um, they were constantly watched by the players in the casino. Um, they were subjected to scrutiny by their superiors and by customers at all times. Um, and you can see how this in turn also shapes the materiality and the practice of gambling. So in Monte Carlo, um, you don't have one a croupier per gambling table, but you have four fully trained copies who would sit in pairs on both the, the sides of the table and they would take turns spinning the wheel. Um, that would make sure that no single copier would be too tired to spin the wheel in exactly the way they had been trained to do. Um, there was at least one apprentice who would handle all the chips and tokens. There was um, a number of trainees who would be seated at the end of the table in order to learn all these procedures. Um, then there was a sous chef who would watch them all while the chef de partie uh, would in turn observe the sous chef and everything from a highly elevated chair sitting above the gambling table. So you have at least a dozen of croupiers per table who were all tasked with a very specific 
um, action to perform and who could not speak to the gamblers outside of this very ritualized um, way of announcing the games, announcing winners, um, and then kind of transition into the next game. Um, so the idea was to have no interaction outside of the polite and efficient conduction of the games of chance. Copiers were supposed to exhibit a very particular emotional style as well. So unattached coolness, so much so that gamblers um, often uh, wrote in their letters and in their personal diaries, you know, are they still even human because they're so devoid of any um, own agenda. Um, and that was to that was also deliberately designed because casinos wanted the copiers to seem objective, um, to be not seen as adversaries to gamblers, but mere conductors of the games. Um, Vegas casinos were different because gambling was done different there. So although um, they had similar surveillance mechanism, so typical spatial layout of a Las Vegas casino supported. Um, a number of tables, um, usually in a sort of oval arrangement, allowing for easy supervision from central authority figures. Um, and throughout the 1950s and 60s, a single dealer would work a table, not a whole group, as in Monte Carlo, um, while the floor manager supervised uh, between two and six tables, and therefore dealers at once. And these floor men were directly responsible for overseeing the cash flow of the tables, ensuring the legitimacy of the games by catching cheaters um, or stand um, kind of uh, ready to address any concerns customers might have. Um, 10 to 12 tables from the pit, which was then again overseen by a pit boss who reported directly to the manager on duty. So you have this very elaborate hierarchy um, where no dealer would be unwatched at any moment. Um, and as a Monte Carlo, dealers were not supposed to feel responsible uh, for wins and losses, but to merely conduct the games. Um, the gambling experience um, in this setting was capitalist and consumer-oriented, which meant uh, it could not be competitive. So people did not compete with a casino, but with chance itself. The casino won... Um, by the players losing, but it did not actually participate in the games. Um, and that was an important point that many dealers said, you know, that is, it was an essential part of training to learn that you were not supposed to care either way whether people won or lost. Um, there's one oral history interview from 1978 um, where one um, dealer stated, um, the best dealers are the ones who don't care. It's not my money. The casinos can afford it. There's no real reason for a dealer to cheat. Um, and that was the reasoning, you know. Again, presenting legitimate games meant um, that players had to be sure that dealer would just conduct the games and not actually interfere with them. Um, and modern casinos as part of the service industry also um, kind of were part of this larger development where Managers did not only seek to control workers' physical efforts, but their emotional labor as well. So the emotional labor of dealers consists of appearing calm, collected, uninvolved, but not disinterested or bored. So this was a fine line to navigate for them. Um, while um, a lot of um, the service personnel were charged with the complete opposite. So especially um, the service personnel was, was kind of 
um, charged with evoked feelings of appreciation and fun, uh, cheerfulness, and those were often, interestingly enough, women. So you have their very strict um, line of division between the genders as well. So you have white males um, that represented professionalism and figures of authority, while women as beverage servers and in Las Vegas as showgirls, for example, often explicitly or implicitly were charged with creating the cheerfulness and energy of the place, um, thereby also having a division of labor in terms of emotional labor. Um, there are also, especially in Las Vegas, this um, the women um, who were the beverage showgirls and the other part of the service personnel um, were also at least implicitly tasked to, uh, task to appeal to the male gaze and be um, kind of represented as sexually available to customers. Um, in 1969, the Dunes had a very specific closing policy, for example, the Dunes is one of the strip casinos um, that required beverage servers to wear very short mini skirts and um, boots that the casino had pre-selected. And although the women uh, of the workforce actually objected and tried to get this policy changed, um, management actually um, kind of stuck to this rule as they saw it as quintessential to the gambling experience. Um, it was also very acceptable behavior in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s um, that patrons would kind of, um, yeah, uh, compliment casinos on their girls, which um, is, I mean, which is a, a big factor in writings and letters to the casinos that, you know, that they would be complimented, you know, how beautiful their um, female workforce was. Um, so you have professional, unemotional male dealers and cheerful, emotional female service personnel on the casino floor. Um, and that is quite essential um, for create this um, gambling experience because this is, of course, um, also creating an emotional atmosphere together with the architecture. So it is really uh, seen as complementary. Thanks so much for also. For the last question, I want to invite you to talk about the gambling practices as a means to produce a specific consumption experiences. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, you know, gambling in Monte Carlo and Las Vegas um, differed not only in appearance, but also in how it was experienced. So Las Vegas casinos were focused on empowering individual gambling consumption, uh, with people being regarded as active individual consumers rather than groups particip uh, participating in ritualized wagering processes. So between 1945 and 1976, you have games like Blackjack, Crabs and slot machines, um, which encourage social interactions, uh, but are based on individual decision making and continuous gambling activity. So you decide whether you take another card. You decide, um, or you roll the dice yourself. You pull the lever yourself. It's barrier-free. It's supposedly chaotic on the gambling floor, but it's really you interacting with the gambling as an individual. And this gave Las Vegas and by extension American gambling this aura of being democratic, of being egalitarian, um, even though in truth the casino, as I previously spoken about, was highly monitored and controlled and not to mention, you know, uh, racially segregated. Um, and in that gambling fit the pattern of the post-war American consumer republic. 
was consumption for empowered individuals um, from the white suburban middle classes. And in contrast, gambling in Monte Carlo was a spectacle practiced at the center of gambling rooms, but in groups, as part of a crowd. Um, the emotional style was also different from Las Vegas um, because players expected, expected each other to not show emotion. It was kind of this idea of um, many gamblers talk of good digestion, which they mean, you know, you are not supposed to be too upset about your losses and not too excited about your wins. To behave according to this notion of um, temperance, which was a big bourgeois middle-class value, especially in Europe at the time. Um, so there you have a more centralized, more ritualized gambling activity. You would also play roulette, so you would put your chips down and then the wheel would be spun, but you were part of maybe over a dozen people playing at the same time, which was much less focused on the individual consumer as American gambling was. Um, and even um, American roulette, you know, tables are smaller and you don't have a whole bunch of croupiers, but again, one-to-one -one interaction. Um, so in both contexts, casinos adapted games to fit their targeted market segment but also playing styles um, of their respective patrons. Monte Carlo, more centralized, more ritualized, and more focused on groups. Um, but in Las Vegas, on the other hand, you have um, more self-confident individual consumers uh, with more agency or supposedly more agency. Um, and that is something that also sets these two um, casino contexts apart and shows you again that despite both offering gambling, they offered very distinctive gambling experiences, which is the overall aim of the book to show. There's so much for, um, for the last question today. I want to invite you to discuss those gamblers who had many different agendas when stepped into the casino. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, what I mean by different agendas is the fact that gamblers were not controlled or just seduced by casinos, which is the old trope. There is um, a gambling historian, uh, John Findlay, who once asked, you know, where all gamblers, suckers and escapists, basically addressing the issue, you know, if you choose to gamble, you're either a sucker because you don't understand the system and that you won't win, or you're an escapist who kind of takes refuge in games of chance because the harsh social, cultural, political realities that surround you. And consumption history does really stress the agencies of consumers, and I wanted to bring that back into the history of gambling. Um, I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that despite casinos putting so much energy and effort in controlling movements and evoking emotions, so on and so forth, that people still had agency on how or whether at all to engage with gambling activities. Um, and I therefore wanted to include a chapter that shows that gamblers in Monte Carlo and Las Vegas could and did approach games of chance in ways that suited their own agendas. So some maybe only watched the games and enjoyed the spectacle um, they were called, uh, that was called to flutter in Monte Carlo, where you just would enter the gambling room and um, sit at the side and watch other people play. And maybe you did participate and maybe you did not. Um, Many eventually did, but only because they wanted to be part of the experience more directly. 
Um, other people in Monte Carlo uh, just gambled for fun and make games of chance part of their leisure and touristic uh, routine. Uh, basically seeing it as an extension of their travels to the Riviera. Um, some gamblers might debate systems and employ mathematical schemes to um, kind of overcome their house advantage, while other relied on superstitions and lucky charms, uh, which were often sold by a whole class of semi-professionals um, and entrepreneurs um, at the casino themselves. So we have the sole parallel economy of selling lucky charms and mathematical pamphlets um, in the casino. So you have a multitude of agendas um, and a multitude of goals um, by gamblers who all would step into Monte Carlo. Um, and in Las Vegas, when you look at the archived sources by in diaries, letters, but also the um, the observations by the casino uh, security, uh, winning was by no means always the highest priority of people coming there. Many gamblers just enjoyed the experience of playing at Vegas, accepted their losses with good grace and as part of the experience. Uh, patrons in Las Vegas between the 40s and 70s um, just enjoyed um, gambling as a larger part of their um, yeah yearly vacation. Um, and that included attending shows, consuming affordable food and drink, um, maybe buy memorabilia, and then, yes, maybe play some games of chance. But they were not just suckers and escapists, as Findlay kind of asked, and he also draws different conclusions in his work. Um, so it's part of such an overall experience. Gambling felt normal to people, it was acceptable, and it was by no means conceive of as a vice or as a just kind of satisfying overpowering urge um, although pathological gambling of course still existed it is just important to me to take gambling history and therefore gamblers more serious than it often has been where gambling is either presented as a vice or as something that people are kind of tricked into doing um, and that means for me to also be open to the possibility um, that gambling and gambler's purpose transcends the dichotomy of irrational and rational behavior that some historians try to make out. Um, or in short, gamblers in Monte Carlo and Las Vegas were not tricked into playing. They themselves chose to go there and to engage with the games uh, because they saw that the worthwhile experience. And to kind of reconstruct that process is really something, it is sort of the red thread throughout my book. Um, and it shows how games could be integrated into touristic activities, into vacation and leisure activities. Um, and that is a way that I wanted to write the history of Monte Carlo and Las Vegas more generally as part of modern consumer capitalism, where experience are produced, sold and consumed. Um, and how this is done with very concrete materials, with spaces going down right to the micro level, how games actually played. Okay, thanks so much for your answer again. So at the end of our interview today, our podcast episode today, I want to, <clears throat> now I want to directly talk to our audience, so to our listeners. So, I mean, as a historian, as a modern historian, I were I think I, I think I learned a lot after reading Dr. Frank's books. I want to repeat the title, Feeling Lucky. I feel very lucky to read this book. And I think anybody 
if you take any interest in the interwoven history of consumption, capitalism, and gambling, for you, I think highly, I mean, I highly recommend you, I mean, consider buy a copy of this book, Feel Lucky, and take a look at this book. I'm pretty sure you must learn a lot, a lot of history, very interesting, very inside, hist interesting historical factor, very insightful discussion, historical argument in this fantastic book. So anyway, so at the end of our talk today, I want to repeat, I, because I want you can remember the title of this fantastic book, Feeling Lucky. I'm pretty sure you must feel very lucky after reading the book, Feeling Lucky. So thanks so much for listening to our episode today. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me.